Alright you guys, so this is going to be a new intro from now on. I'm going to give a little summary of each guest before the actual episode starts. So with this one, with Patrick Humphrey, we're going to get into parenting and making fitness a priority for your kids, and also why a lot of people end up failing with weight loss and any other goal in life, and primarily it's due to all the bad information out there. So great episode ahead. Hope you guys enjoy it and let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the wonderful Patrick Umphrey. Say hello. Hey everybody. So I like to always start the show to kind of cut, uh, break through the ice with uh, my audience and ask my guests, do you have any big plans for the weekend? Uh, in-laws are coming over and my son turns six years old, so we're having a little birthday party for him. Oh, that'll be good. What did he ask for for his birthday? Uh, he is into Star Wars, but it's more of a fixation with the characters, I think. Like, he's never actually watched it, and I know that might sound a little silly to some of your listeners, but my son is on the autism spectrum, and Mm -hmm. so, um... He will occasionally get a deep interest in certain characters, certain topics, subjects, and things like that. And uh, right now it's Star Wars, which I think is pretty cool. That's awesome. Actually, one of my clients, her daughter's two, and this past Christmas, she asked her, like, oh, what do you want for Christmas? And she's like, Darth Vader. Nice. (laughs) And she's like, I don't even think my daughter has, like, watched Star Wars or seen anything on TV, but she knows who Darth Vader is. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. so can you tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? Yeah, well, my name is Patrick, and I am an online coach. I run uh, my coaching company called Eat, Train, Progress, LLC, and uh, also run the Facebook group called Eat, Train, Progress. And it's kind of interesting how I got into the industry. Uh, I started out just doing a lot of reading on bodybuilding.com. I came across Alan Aragon. And I started, I subscribed to his research review and I started kind of getting exposed to some of the more evidence-based practitioners in the field. And um, I was doing all of my logging of my food on MyFitnessPal and I discovered that MyFitnessPal had an internet forums. So I started posting there and I started developing somewhat of, I guess I'll call it a following, even though that that sounds kind of douchey and I don't mean it that way. Uh, But I'd, you know, I'd get a lot of PMs in my inbox asking me for advice. And so eventually I started a uh, forum group on my fitness pal. You can go in there and create your own sub forums and moderate it yourself. And uh, so I started kind of advising people through that forum. And that's originally where each train progress started was in the my fitness pal uh, groups. And from there, uh, about two or three years into it, I decided that I wanted to start coaching people. And so I developed my own uh, online coaching platform, and I gave it away for free for a full year. And the way I did this was by starting an application process where I would post an application, I would commit to 12 weeks of online coaching for free in exchange for the experience that I get, and then some before and after photos and testimonials. And that's really where it started. So it went from posting on internet forums, advising people, to uh, just kind of jumping in with both feet. In the process of doing this, I also got a training certification with the NASM, 
I have since let it lapse, but I did also train clients uh, for about one year in a gym as well, just for the purpose of gaining more experience to apply to the uh, online coaching business. So that's really uh, where it started. That's awesome. So would you like what do you prefer more like in person or online? Uh, I like the online environment environment quite a bit more. Um, I think that there are advantages and disadvantages, however. So I think that if you have someone who is not familiar with exercise to begin with, I'll give you an example, trying to teach someone how to do a barbell squat using just online uh, resources, I think is less efficient. Um, You know, being there in person, you can obviously get more rapid feedback, give more rapid feedback. And then there's also some limited contexts where I think the ability to actually touch someone can help teach them how to uh, move in a certain way, or you can use that as a mode of communication that just simply can't be done, obviously, uh, on the internet. So, Yeah. Do you ever get like your clients online to, say, film themselves doing an exercise and then have them send it to you, and then you can kind of give them feedback? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that is a regular, it's actually a requirement for the majority of my clients, especially the ones, like if I have clients doing any techniques that are somewhat technically demanding that may have a higher uh, injury risk kind of component to it, I'll absolutely have them send me footage at least once every two weeks. Um, and then clients of mine who power lift, I will get weekly footage from them where I have them take at least one heavy set per week, film it and send it to me. And then every Skype session that I have with them, I'm reviewing their technique First, obviously, for you know what could be a safety concern, and then secondarily for performance-related concerns. So if it's a power lifter, I'm going to want to make sure that they're in a strong position and, and see if there's anything we can do to improve that. That's awesome. So who are like your base clientele online? Like, what are their ages? What, well, who, who's the like online client? It's, it's really a wide range of people. I have... Roughly about a third of my one-on-one clients are power lifters, and about two-thirds of them are just general population. Um, I would say that if I had to pick the most popular demographic, it would probably be people who are overweight or who have obesity who are trying to just make improvements to their diet, trying to lose weight, trying to improve their habits, uh, things like that. Okay. That would be the, the kind of the majority of who I work with. Yeah, because I was like, because I primarily train in the gym. I have some clients online, and I was talking to my in-person clients if they would ever like consider online training or like do it long term. And Mm -hmm. they all kind of said like it's interesting to them, but they still prefer having someone there and having like communication and almost that one-on-one attention almost. Absolutely, and I think that's a great point because I think that's that's something that. in-person training offers that you just can't really get in the online uh, online field. Yeah, so, I also think that for what it's worth, like I think that people, when they think of online training, many people who aren't familiar with it, they actually tend to think that it consists of them working out while someone on the internet is watching them work out just as you would <laughs> in a lot of training thing. And I know, you know, like we, we obviously think that's funny because we know that that's not what it is. But I can see why I see why people think that that's what it is because that's the most intuitive um, thought that I think people would have, having never heard of it. And I encounter people all the time in my life when they ask me what I do, and I tell them I'm an online personal trainer. They that's their immediate thought. They're like, "Oh, so you watch people work out on the internet?" And I'm like, "Well, no, not exactly." And so um, I think that 
you do need a certain level of independence, so to speak, as an individual in order to have an online coach versus an in-person one. You need to feel comfortable training by yourself, and you need to feel like you can get the exercises done without someone there to necessarily watch you or support you. But having said that, I also think that as an online coach, you can offer a great deal of support through the online medium. It's just not support that they receive the second they're doing the workout, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think also like clients right now are kind of almost mature in a sense that they've been to gym so far, they've done all these different diets, and maybe now they're just looking for something to do in the gym that they're going to, and they're just like, hitting that weekly circuit of machines and they're like, I'm bored. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, so the next thing I wanted to kind of touch on was, um, how you're going to influence your children for health and fitness. Cause I find even with my clients that, um, that have kids, depending on how old they are, kind of see how parents should kind of model themselves to make sure that their kids follow the right footsteps to be healthy and fit. Yeah, you know, I think this is an awesome question. I also don't know if I'll have a great answer to this. <laughs> because I think this is one of those things where, like, I can remember before having kids thinking about all these ways that I was going to parent my kids and thinking about, you know, you see other parents and you think, well, why are they doing this? And, and it's so easy to be critical. And then you have kids and it's just this entirely different universe. And I always get a chuckle when, um, you know, I'll, I'll have friends of mine that are non-parents that'll that'll say the same things that I used to say in terms of how they're going to raise their kids. And like, there's just a part of me that's like, dude, you have no idea. Just wait till you have them because it's just an entirely different universe. And uh, but having said that, um, I think that I'm in somewhat of a unique situation due to the special needs that my son has. Um, part of many children on the autism spectrum uh, means that they may have sensory input issues. And so there are a lot of food textures that he can't stand. Many children on the autism spectrum have a very, very limited diet in terms of the variety of things that they're willing to eat. And so we've been making a lot of progress in that area with my son, but it does absolutely present unique challenges as a parent. But I can talk about some kind of general, um, ideas that I have and philosophies, whether or not I'm executing those as well as uh, I can say them is another story, but I can tell you what the intention is. And that's that when we find um, foods that I would consider, I'm going to use the term healthy. I know that people have a debate on the subjective nature of that term, but let's just assume that you'll let me get away with it. So like fruits, vegetables, you know, things that are nutrient dense that aren't heavily refined. And I'm going to use the term junk food. And I'm just going to assume we can accept what that definition probably is, like potato chips and candy and thing like things like that. So um, I attempt to always make sure that whatever meals they're eating, the majority of what they eat consists of healthy foods. And I know that sounds like an oversimplification, but I want to see some fruit on his plate because I know he will eat fruit. There's a limited number of vegetables that he will eat, but fortunately there's at least um, a few different options. He loves green beans. He likes bell peppers. He likes pickles, onions, uh, things that have a lot of crunch to them. He seems to, uh, seems to enjoy. Um, and uh, he also likes yogurt. So I'll have him eat that pretty regularly, but then I will also not like, uh, I don't want to reinforce this idea that there are foods that are bad necessarily. And so what we try to do is talk about foods that he should be eating most of the time and foods that he can eat some of the time. And that's kind of the 
the way that we use um, the way that we try to teach moderation. These, there's most of the most of the time foods and some of the time foods, and I still let him eat if he wants to have some potato chips, if he wants to have some chocolate. I let him eat some of that, but we moderate how much he's allowed to eat, and we make sure that that represents a minority of his diet. But we we don't we don't make it out to be this um, either forbidden thing or this thing that's used as a reward. We just you know let him have it in limited quantities and make sure that it's not a major portion of his diet. And I think that's a good way of doing it because like I remember when I was a kid, like I used to be two hundred pounds and the fat kid essentially in high school and we had like chips and pop and all that kind of crap in the house all the time so that's what I just yep. ate and then yep. in my head I was like oh when I become a parent we should just not have that but then at the right. same time it's like if you have like zero tolerance for any kind of junk food in your house your kids are going to want it even more so it's yeah like- that's, that's my thought I, I think I agree with you there that like it would kind of be this forbidden thing that it just makes me worry that are they going to then you know, once they get out on their own, is their diet going to be like potato chips all day or something? I don't know. Yeah. That, that's like, like my biggest fear is that I'll, because I want to have kids someday and I don't want to do anything to like screw them up royally when they're older. Right. And right. that's like probably the biggest fear for a lot of parents where it's like whatever you say or do or even you might do something that you don't even think is going to affect them one day and it'll like pop up down their down their life and you're like damn it how did i screw this up i tell you what man it's it's kids don't come with instruction manuals i wish they did but like it's it is a wild ride uh raising kids and and you're expressing what i think a lot of parents probably probably fear like you just you love your kid more than anything in the world and you just want them to uh to end up having a productive life and and being you know functional and not not messing them up too bad so, so I, I agree with you yeah what would your advice be for parents trying to make like fitness and health a priority for themselves because i find this is a good example for like moms and especially because i probably 90 percent of my clientele are moms mm-hmm. and the moment you know the kid's schedule gets so packed up and so like one thing after another sport after sport they tend to like kind of push themselves back limit themselves going to the gym as often as they would earlier in the year and then there is a chance that they'll like fall off and be like oh i need to take a break from the gym and hopefully i'll be back in november or something like what advice would you have for parents yeah that's a great question um i think that um Proper scheduling so that you treat your exercise as a, a priority. Now, how high of a priority that's going to be, obviously, like, it could be very easy as a fitness professional to think that exercise would be the number one priority. But I think the reality is that caring for your child, you know, putting putting food on the table and putting clothes on their back is obviously a higher priority. I would say that at some point, sleep would become a higher priority. And I'll, and I'll give an example, a new parent, if you have a, a, a newborn and you're, and you're up all night at some point, if you have a choice between I'm going to go to the gym for an hour and a half, or I'm taking a nap at some point, the nap's going to be the better choice for your, for your health. And so, um, you know, exercise, yes, it's still absolutely a priority, but where does it fall on that priority scale? I think identifying that is probably pretty important, and I think that's probably going to change depending on the you know the family dynamic and you know what your family needs at the time. I think that a huge thing is communication with your spouse. So, 
if you have three kids and you're sharing those duties, you know, getting some sort of a regular workout schedule and figuring out what can I budget in my in my schedule? What can I budget for working out? And communicate that with your spouse and and make that arrangement ahead of time and get on a schedule. And then I also think as a coach, I would be looking at if time does become a concern. So the reality might be that the person who used to train five days a week for an hour and a half might have to go to a two day a week program. I think as a coach, you have to look at the training variables and you have to find a way to say, what is the, what is the most bang for the buck for this individual, for their goal set? How do I design their program now so that I can at least try to capture the majority of progress that I can under this restricted time frame? And I think that I would collectively look at all of those things to find the best option. And the reality might be for some people, depending on their level of athletic development and depending on their time constraints, they might be in a situation where, you know what, for the next three months, based on my schedule, my goal is going to be to not lose my my current fitness levels. So the goal might not be to add weight to your squat. And the goal might not be to uh, try to, you know, improve your time on your on your mile or something like that. It, it might just be, let's try to just maintain what we have right now and find out what dose of exercise is realistic and how do I structure that. And I think you said a really important thing is like the priority list. And I was talking to uh, Coach Stevo a couple weeks back and he said something that like really clicked with me where he's like, if you can get your client to put fitness and health at number five of their priority list, then you've done something amazing. And I'm like, holy I crap. Agree with that. Yeah, I'm like, holy crap, that makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, like you said, a lot of coaches are like, oh, if my client's priority list is not fitness is not number one, then they're just lazy. Like, this is what they need to do. And the coach gets frustrated and the client's just kind of going through the motions. And it's like, man, like if you, I've been telling this to clients recently and they're like, oh, I really like that. And it almost took off the pressure and stress that they have to constantly think of going to the gym and making good meals and all this other crap along with all their other stuff going on in their life. And one of my clients actually like took it to heart and he texted me, I think it was like Monday night when we have this session and he's like, uh, I'm going to have to skip the gym tonight because I've been working long hours and my kids are kind of guilt tripping me to go eat sushi with them. I'm like, that's fine you can just come in later in the week. So you just rebooked. And he's like, I felt really good about my decision that I did that. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Like yep. you're balancing it all out. Like this is perfect. And yeah, that was just a big realization the last couple months that I've been training clients with. Yeah. And I, and I think that's important, especially as a fitness professional, just to recognize that like, <clears throat> you know, some of us probably have fitness much higher up on the priority list relative to other things, but that's that's not necessarily representative of other people and nor should it be and so that's a good thing to keep in perspective and also like the whole uh fitness fitness professional thinking or or even directly saying that their clients are lazy like i've literally heard that happening and seen that happen like on the internet and i just find that disgusting in terms of uh knowing that there are people that would um that would have those kind of accusations of their clients i think that People have a lot of struggles that are absolutely not laziness, and um, you know, weight loss is hard, and generating or sticking to fitness habits is very hard to do. And someone's inability to accomplish a task, or someone's inability to succeed at a given, uh, you know, fitness or improvement kind of goal, 
that failure does not mean that they're lazy. It just means that they were unable to complete the task and they need to regroup and figure out another strategy. But, you know, I think too many people are quick to dismiss it as people being lazy or people making excuses. Now, sometimes, yeah, the truth is sometimes people genuinely might be lazy, but I don't think that that should be the default kind of uh, position to take, uh, especially if, if it's our job to work with people. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think I, I hate that too when coaches say their clients are lazy, and I'm like, it's probably because there's something else going on in their life that you don't yep. know about, right? And yep. like over the years, like I've probably like depending on when my clients have started with me, I've trained the same people anywhere between one to six years, and then as you get to know these people, like they'll eventually tell you, he's like, well, you know, last year I was actually going through a divorce. That's why I wasn't really into the gym and I was missing or like my parents passed away. So I had to like just disappear for a while. I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. Like, and the other thing is like, there's some clients that absolutely don't like exercise. Like they know they have to do it to stay healthy and like keep up with their kids. But some people just don't like it because they never grew up in a, you know, active family. And I think that on that note of not liking exercise, I think that I believe it's important as a coach that you try to help someone identify what's what are the exercises that you enjoy the most or hate the least, and then additionally, how do we how do we structure a program to get you to just start doing those activities at a volume that is not going to cause you a bunch of pain afterwards, so that we can start to develop the habit of exercise. And I think there's a number of things you can do to try to foster that. I think it's a lot easier said than done. But one thing would be uh, keeping a proper set of metrics so that you can show someone that they're improving at what they're doing and then finding a way to structure it so that they're not trying to bite off more than they can chew. I'll give you one example without naming names. The gym that uh, I used to work at, I recall a trainer telling me with pride that one of his clients called him and said that they couldn't, they could hardly get out of bed and they were having trouble going up steps. And this trainer was smiling about it as though he did something great when he took this new trainee and basically beat them up so badly in the gym with exercise that the guy had a hard time walking the following day. That is not a good thing. That is not something that is going to generate the habit of exercise and you're doing the client a disservice if you are trying to cause them physical pain with exercise. Exercise is not something that should punish you. It's something that should make you better. And when you're first starting out, uh, you know, I would even make the argument, and I have a blog post coming out on this soon, but I would make the argument that as a fitness professional, when you're well adapted to exercise, there are a number of reasons that exercise is rewarding for you. So for example, when I go hit a squat PR and I post it on my Facebook group or I post it on Instagram and I get 100 people to like and reply, it makes me feel good. I get positive rewards for that. Hitting a PR makes me feel good. And going to the gym and just putting a barbell on my back and squatting is a fun activity for me. So I get rewards from all of these things uh, that that encompass my trip to the gym and my progress. A beginner, it's the exact opposite scenario. A beginner goes to the gym. They might not be comfortable in that environment. They might be intimidated. They don't have the motor skills to execute the exercises proficiently. They don't have the work capacity or the ability to buffer fatigue where they can go in and do some some exercise and not feel like shit about it when they're done. And then the next day, they're going to have a hard time getting out of bed because it's going to hurt. 
And they probably don't have a social support network that's going to build them up for all of these things. And so when you look at those two scenarios, you see that the beginner in many ways gets punished for the exercise that they do. And the fitness professional or the person who is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say fitness professional because I don't want to group us all together like this, but I mean, the person who's well adapted to exercise, they, they are comfortable in the gym. They get rewarded for everything that they do when they go in there. And it's, it's kind of this exact opposite scenario if you think about it. And I think that we need to remember that when we're working with a beginner, because the goal should be to try to build the habit of exercise and to try to take the negative stimulus away and to try to make it as positive of an experience as we can so they can stick to that habit and eventually get to the point where the training actually does become a rewarding experience. Yeah, definitely. Like, I, I think a lot of the people in the general public that start exercising, they almost think that they have to be so sore that they can't walk. And that means it's a good thing. And it's like, right. no, like start off slow. Like just if I had a new client come in, I tell him like, you might be a little sore tomorrow, but we're going to go easy today because it's just your first time and we'll build you up. And it's like the prime example is um, like New Year's resolutions. Like everyone's at the gym January 1st, January 2nd, they're still there. January 3rd, they're like, holy crap, I feel like shit because yep. I'm so <laughs> sore. And then they fall off. Yep, Absolutely. But yeah, like people just need to take the small little baby steps and just build themselves up, and then they'll eventually enjoy it. But um, I always, I always tell clients you need to find something that you enjoy doing, and it can be like one exercise, and we can always work on that one exercise until it's perfect, and then maybe find another thing. And a good example is I had one mom that she absolutely does not like exercise, like because she had to choose, she'd rather do like a Zumba class or something because it's like fun. And yep. uh, she was telling me that she wants to learn how to use kettlebells. And I'm like, hell yeah, let's use kettlebells. And we're learning sure. how to do the swing. And she's like, yeah, I feel better like learning this stuff. And she got this is the first time she's ever been excited about exercise. So I was like, your whole program is going to be kettlebells. Let's just go with it. I, that's, I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, and I think also it's good to remember, too, that like just because someone starts out at a certain point in terms of what they're willing to do or what they enjoy – absolutely does not mean that that's where they're going to stay. And I think that further reinforces the point that it's important to, you know, help them find something they enjoy in the beginning. And I think back to myself, my first year training, I didn't squat, I didn't bench, I didn't deadlift. And now I am a power lifter. Granted, I'm not very good at it in terms of like, you know, no one's ever going to brag about the numbers that I put up, but, um, I also, uh, successfully coach power lifters and, um, I think, sorry, I got to close that window. Apologize for that, everybody. And so if someone would have told me on day one that you have to squat, you have to bench, you have to deadlift, um, A, I would not have been able to do it in the uh, gym that I was in when I started. And B, I probably would have quit because I wasn't ready to, to take the time to learn how to execute those techniques properly. But about a year into it, after I had made some progress and I started enjoying exercise, I was absolutely ready and willing to do that. And so I would, I would have to think that the same argument applies to other people on a grander scale, just in terms of like, you might have someone that doesn't want to lift weights at all. You might have someone that doesn't want to do cardio, but that doesn't mean that six months down the road after they've, uh, done some, some form of exercise and gotten better at it, that they're not then willing to take on something new. I have clients right now that just, that, that they walk like that is their, their exercise program is you're going to go out and go for a walk. And one of these clients is down 30 pounds. He's down 10% of his body weight. And so, um, you know, we can sit and talk about what's optimal, but 
point is you, you have to start making progress and get people feeling good about themselves. And when you do that, they're, they're very likely to continue. Yeah. Like I remember working at my previous gym and it was a franchise of like small boutique personal training gyms. And we would always have a, like an AGM where all the locations come together and they talk and the founder came and he was very like adamant about that our gym has to do the best job on getting people to lose weight and you have to figure out why they don't want to lose weight and you're the one that's responsible for them and if you don't have them losing weight within the first three months you failed as a coach and I was like holy shit that's like a lot of pressure because yeah, I, 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 I was like I've, I've had clients for years where you know like maybe in one year they lost five pounds but they're really proud of that and they have all their stuff going on in their life and I was like that's a very high expectation and then if you're coming across that way, your client's going to pick that up and probably eventually leave because they're like, this guy's just way too pushy for me. Right. Absolutely. And I, I've seen it so many times where like coaches are almost giving bad advice to their clients. And I was going to ask you, because I've been starting to ask this question, like, have you ever seen any kind of bad advice out in our world about nutrition and weight loss and things like that? Oh, yeah. I'll, I think there's all kinds of it. Like, I think that people tend to... Um, you still see a lot of advice about people saying that calories don't matter. And, you know, that that one's just like, huh? Like, where, where did you get that idea from? Like, we, we've got an overwhelming amount of evidence that says that, that calories matter a, a great deal. Now, you don't necessarily have to track those calories. I think that, that that's obviously a, a good method for a lot of people. But doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to go into my fitness pal and log everything, but it does mean that calories still matter whether you're tracking them or not tracking them. I have uh, I know that there's personal trainers that sell um, you know I, I'm not a fan of some of the multi-level marketing platforms. Um, you get trainers that push that on their clients. You get trainers that say if you don't take this supplement after you work out, you might as well not even work out, which is just nonsense so yeah i think there's a i think there's quite a bit of bad information out there yeah like with our profession it's really hard to be successful like you need to put so much time and effort into it for a long period of time to actually see the reward that you're looking for so i think that's why a lot of coaches fall into that oh i'm gonna you know sign up as a distributor for this supplement company and just like yeah multi-level marketing just get everybody on it and i'm gonna kick some back to some dollars when I sell every single product as I can. And, um, yeah, clients fall for that because if they trust that person, they're like, oh, yeah, definitely, I need to be spending like $300 on supplements every month, That's right? True. And you, you hit it right on the head in that it's a trust thing, and I consider that kind of taking advantage of that client trust when you are um, pushing supplements on them. I just think that that's, uh, first of all, it's questionable as far as a scope of practice thing, but... I also just think it's it's rather dishonest because there are a lot of those clients who are going to believe that the reason that the trainer has the physique that they do is because of whatever pill or powder they're trying to sell them when the reality is that's got next to nothing to do with uh, the reason they have the athletic abilities they do. Yeah, like personally, I sell um, like protein powders and things like that, but I'm not like pushy at all. Like when clients ask like, oh, should I be taking a protein shake? And I'm like, well, it really depends on how your day is. Like if you're always rushed for time, then yeah, sure, it'd probably work in your schedule. But um, it's not like I've seen other coaches do. And, you know, 
most people don't like the protein that I take because it's a vegan protein and they're like, oh, that's disgusting. I'm like, that's fine. Go find a whey protein that tastes better. That's all I, all I care about is like you're getting enough protein and enough vegetables yep. per day. And if you want a protein shake instead, then yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, as long as as long as the customer is being informed with with correct info and being allowed to make their own decision on it, that's that's a little different. But oftentimes that's not how it's presented, I think. Yeah. Um, so on the topic of nutrition, what's your like philosophy? Like, do you believe in the calorie counting macros, meal plans, or like say habits that's been really popular in the last couple of years? I think that it's, it's, I think that the ultimate challenge as a coach is to help the client identify what approach is going to work the best for them. And I think that that approach is going to differ from person to person, and it could differ quite drastically. I have um, I could name two different clients who are who who have obesity, and one and they're both down between thirty and forty pounds. One of them tracks absolutely everything; the other one does not track anything. And that's a good just example that you can you can have a very successful approach that matches the individual even though it might not be something that, that we ourselves might do. Um, and, and so I would say that I think tracking is a very good tool, and I think that it's a very good tool for most people to do at least for a short period of time. And what I mean by that is even if tracking is not going to be a great fit for someone, if they can manage to do it for a couple of weeks, I think it's an incredibly valuable learning experience to start to identify energy values and macronutrient values of foods and to start to create some sort of a frame of reference to what an appropriate energy intake might be for a given individual. Um, but I don't think you can force that on people and I don't think you can present it as though this must happen and this and that there's no way to lose weight if you don't track because I think that's nonsense. Um, I also think it depends on the level of leanness of the person you're dealing with I don't currently coach physique athletes. I do have some athletes that are quite lean. Um, I have a couple of male clients that get, you know, get close to the 10% body fat mark. I've got one very lean female client that probably could compete if she wanted to. People like this, I think generally the leaner you get, you probably have to track and you probably have to track more accurately because I think you have less room for error. Um, and so those would be people where um, if they want to really push the the lean territory, they might have to use a food scale for for at least uh, a good portion of some stuff that they eat. Maybe not on you know foods that aren't as energy dense. But then I also have no problem if someone wants to take more of a habit based approach. Um, you might do something where you figure out a way to structure their meals in a flexible manner, so that, for example, maybe you determine that someone is going to have uh, four meals a day. You could use your hand sizes to approximate protein servings. Uh, I think Precision Nutrition has a guide on this. Yep. So something similar to what PN does, I think, is a pretty good baseline approach that you could tweak um, to try to roughly match someone's energy intake to their energy needs, keeping in mind that maintenance is not a static point. It's a moving target and that for most people, you don't need to hit the bullseye in terms of nailing down exactly what their calorie and macronutrient nutrient intake is. You just need to get close, and I think that approach can work well. And then finally, I would say that 
I don't consider habit-based approaches and tracking-based approaches as mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that is even my clients that do track, I would still look at some habit development techniques so that they're not necessarily exclusively relying on tracking and so that perhaps adherence to the diet becomes a little bit easier because they're also working on uh, food-related habits. One might be better management of your food environment so that you're not craving uh, you know, junk food quite as often because you've managed your environment appropriately by, for example, taking foods that are really palatable and making sure that they're not visible in your environment, making them less convenient, and then doing things like putting a fruit bowl out in your kitchen so that you can see the fruit, then it's in arm's reach when you walk into the kitchen, so you're more likely to, to choose that. Um, and so I just don't think that those that those two approaches are exclusive of each other. And then additionally, I would say there are people who, who might track for six months and they might eventually just grow really sick of it. And they might decide, you know what, I'd like to see if I can find a way to maintain my current body composition without logging. And I think if you can do that, that could be a very big successful moment for that client. And I think that developing some of these habits or at least making yourself aware of your current habits could be a kind of a starting point to doing that. Yeah, I really like the idea of tracking. Like it can be as detailed as tracking every single calorie to what did you just eat today? And I think mm-hmm. it gives a lot of information because, you know, when I ask clients, I'm like, oh, how's your eating coming along? And they're like, oh, I eat pretty good. And when clients say that to me, I'm like, okay, well, there's probably something going on that you're like thinking that you're eating well, but you're still not losing weight. So let's, let's see what's going on. And when they start tracking, like I had a, a, one of my clients the other day, it turns out she's only eating two meals per day and maybe a liter of water per day. And I'm like, okay, now we got some good information. Let's work on top of this. Right. And, um, my other approach is like, depending on the client, I really try to figure out if, you know, tracking every single calories is going to add another stress to their life or how about we just focus on getting enough meals in a day and kind of base it from there. Absolutely. I, I, and I think that's great that you would uh, try to identify those, that, that level of stress and even, even perhaps their willingness to take on tracking. And the other thing like I find is that as much as you try to educate your clients on like healthy eating habits and like everything that could help them reach their goal, they'll come to you the next day and be like, hey, so I saw this thing on Facebook that if I eat these six foods, I'm going to lose all my belly fat. And you're just yeah. like, God damn, okay. <laughs> and it, it's, yeah. it, it's just funny how like they could get all the best information from you because you're the, you know, the professional. You read research, you read articles from other coaches, and you spend all your like weekends reading books, and then they come to you and you're like, so I'm going to do this two-week cleanse. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's tough, and I think that that's that's a, that's an opportunity. I would say to uh, hopefully have that discussion with them, but obviously there's there's some people that might not be willing to have that because they might have already made up their mind with what they're going to do. But I do think that it's a potential opportunity to sit down and say, "Well, I'd like to give you my opinion on that," and uh, you know, all you all you can do is try to educate them to the best of your ability. I think. Why do you think people fall into like, I want to try this diet, I want to try this cleanse, I want to do this detox like over and over again, hoping that it's going to give them the result they're looking for? That's a great question. I think that many people think it's because people are dumb, and I don't think that that's necessarily the case. 
I think that generally speaking, um, weight loss is really freaking hard. And I think that we have a situation where there are a number of people who have tried several times in their life to successfully lose weight and then maintain that weight loss, and they fail. They fail for a variety of reasons, but I think one major reason is that it's just really freaking hard to do. Um, you know, there are I wouldn't be able to go into great detail on this because, you know, someone like Stefan Guillenay would, would be able to really talk about the biology of this. But generally speaking, as you lose weight, you start to become more sedentary. You start to burn fewer calories and hunger levels go up and food seeking behaviors tend to increase. And so you have this situation where you are literally um, your biology is fighting against you as far as weight loss goes. And then in addition to that, I believe that we live in a rather obesogenic environment where, you know, going to the grocery stores is, is, is just an example of that when you look at the overabundance of non-satiating, high energy value foods um, that you could, you could literally eat thousands of calories of. They're convenient, they're cheap, and they, they don't really blunt hunger. And in fact, they're highly rewarding, and so they make you want to eat more. And I just think that that makes it really hard. And that's not me saying that it's the food's fault. I'm not, I'm not eliminating personal responsibility, obviously. Personal responsibility is all we have, and we have to take advantage of it. But the truth of the matter is, it's really freaking hard. And I think that we need to exhibit a little bit of empathy towards these people who struggle. And I think that if I were someone who tried to lose weight 15 times in my life and I repeatedly failed, I can't really say that I would be um, looking towards the difficult solutions. Uh, you know, it, it, I probably also would say, hey, this is something that advertises fast weight loss. I should try this. I mean, I don't know if I would, but I, I certainly can't say that I wouldn't because I would imagine that it's got to be just frustrating as shit to repeatedly fail at a task. I would imagine that um, it causes people to feel like they're failures, and uh, and the truth of the matter is, it's just it's just really hard. Oh yeah, definitely, hundred percent with that. Like, e- even for myself, well, growing up as like the obese kid, there was times where I would try to lose weight, it would never happen. I would do this and that, and it just didn't happen until like one. I think it was like. I think the summer of grade 11, I finally was like, okay, this is enough of this shit. I'm going to go read as much as I can and just go 100% into it. And I always tell people it was just a t- it was just timing for me, right? And I tell that to my clients. I'm like, maybe this year is not your year that you're going to like see this huge success that you're hoping for because X, Y, and Z might pop up, but eventually it's going to happen yep. for you. And the other thing I tell clients is like, if you look at a full year, and you kind of have to pick your time when you're going to be 100% into this thing and maybe back off other times during the year. And I tell everybody, like, summer, there's, there's no way that you're going to be losing, like, 15 pounds. There's going to be barbecues, late nights, beers, wine, all those things. Unless you, you know, become a hermit crab and just live at home and <laughs> never go out, then sure. But, you know, pick your times during the year where you can be fully into it and you'll see success that way. I think um, on on the topic of why people seek out these kind of, I'll call them quick fixes um, for short, I think another reason is that they're so damn prevalent. Like if you just look at the things that are popular, in fact, this is probably a better answer than the first thing I even said, but like if you look <laughs> how popular this shit is, it's ridiculous. Like 
it's it's almost challenging to go find good information if you go to a place that sells books on dieting. There's so much crap out there. It's unbelievable. Um, and the same thing with products. Like you can go – one of my favorite produce stores right down the street, they have really cheap, fresh produce. But they also have what I, what I call the hippie section where it's detoxes and, you know – all this basically crap for lack of a better word. And it's just, it's so prevalent that you can't really blame the, the user for not being able to separate what is the legitimate, uh, route to go versus what is just, what is just a scam. Like I'll tell you the worst one. It works. The it works stuff where you, where you take the saran wrap and wrap it around yourself. Like get the hell out of here. (laughs) Man, there, there's so much stuff out there. Like one thing I recently saw, I was like in my Facebook feed and it was a Facebook ad and it was like a video of ripped men and women. And it's like the workout that trainers can't deal with. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and people click that stuff all the time. Yeah, of course. It's unbelievable. I know, even like, um, I was talking to a client the other day, the shake weight, when that thing came out, and I was yeah. reading, I read an article about it, and it was the most sold item on like um, TV ever in history. I'm like, okay, this is either because people think this is a funny, stupid thing, or they actually yeah. think it's going to work. <laughs> I'm quite, I'm quite fond of the tug toner. <laughs> yeah, that, that, so many parodies of that stuff came out. Like I remember uh, when I first heard about the shake weight. I think I was watching like a clip on Ellen. And I thought it was like a joke. And she's like, this yeah. is actually a real product. And then the best thing she said, it was like, oh, and then, uh, in a couple months, they're going to come out with the male version of this and it's bigger and it's black. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, I was going to circle back to almost like what we were talking about way in the beginning of this conversation with your um, son who has autism. Yeah, And uh, I actually used to train a Paralympic swimmer with autism and I found it really interesting training someone with that because anytime we had to change his program, he was too, yeah, he just did not like any kind of new change. So I would keep, you know, yeah, I would keep some um, exercises similar, but if it was just too new, he would just almost have like a breakdown and I yes. remember one time, because he would always bus to the gym, and one time the uh, the bus was late, and he came in, like I think yep. it was like seven minutes late, and that would just like threw him off. So I was wondering, yep. like, it would be interesting to get a perspective of someone who actually has a son with autism. Like, what are the challenges you have with him? Because I know, like, with autism, there's different spectrums, but what are you currently dealing with with that one? All sorts of stuff. Well, first of all, you know, the autism spectrum has grown quite a bit in terms of the diagnostic criteria that would qualify someone or or, uh, diagnose someone as having autism. Um, And so you could have two people on the autism spectrum, but they would be substantially different in terms of their limitations or the things that they struggle with. But there are some categorical things that are, I would say, fairly common uh, with people on the spectrum. doesn't mean that they will all have it. But one of those things is difficulty managing transitions or changes. And so the the moment you said uh, changes in the program, I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> so um, one thing that has helped a great deal is to – 
if there's going to be a change, we let our son know ahead of time before that change takes place so that he can anticipate the change coming up and he can prepare for it. If I were training someone on on the autism spectrum, I would probably find a way to do that. So if I knew that the following week we were going to introduce a new exercise, I would probably let this person know ahead of time. And I would probably even find a way to set the expectation of what the new exercise is. I'll give you one example. Um, I, I was meeting with a friend of mine who was another trainer who is he was working on a program designed for people on the spectrum. And so he just he and I had a few Skype sessions just so I could share my experiences. But one thing that I think could be monumentally helpful if I were training someone with autism at a gym, I would take a video of the gym like literally take a movie to show this person, here is what you are going to expect when you walk into the door. Here is what the gym looks like. Here is what this exercise looks like so they can form the visual in their head of everything they're going to expect before it happens. We use this with our son in the form of what's called social stories. And this is something that his therapist, um, one of his uh, behavioral therapists has worked with us on as parents. And it's literally a storybook that tells a story of something that he's going to do. One example would be this. When when he was three or so, we really struggled with him going to get a haircut. It was just huge meltdowns, very stressful for everyone. And so they made a social story of a boy getting his haircut. And it would literally be a storybook of a kid going and getting his haircut. Here come the scissors. The, the barber is going to take the scissors and cut like this. Then he's going to use these clippers. They make a funny noise and, you know, all these things to lay out the expectation. And I tell you, it's amazing how well it works. Like it, uh, it only took a few runs with this uh, going through this book and probably a couple of trips before he just got used to it very, very rapidly. So it's pretty amazing. So is there any, like, um, support out in the States for kids with autism? Like, I like here in Canada, because my wife used to do this, she was a behavioral, um, I don't, not a therapist, but behavioral, like, um, what the hell is it called now? I'm blanking. But she helped um, the kids that she worked with, like, certain, with, like, certain, like, respite programs and things like that. Yes. Yeah, there are, there's a variety of different programs here. And not to sound like an ignorant bastard, but my wife handles the majority of those things. Um, there are also a couple of very, very good schools uh, that are here that unfortunately are not uh, free of charge. So you do need good insurance in order to go there, which I find sad because there's there's many children on the spectrum that are in need that don't have access to that health care. And I find that uh, very unfortunate. But we've been very lucky that our son was able to attend one of these schools, our local one is called St. David's, and he went there for a two-year course, and it was absolutely remarkable uh, how much he benefited from that just in terms of his uh, personal growth at this sort of thing. Yeah, because out here in Canada, like at least I know in my province, like a teacher could have you know, a group of students of 30 for her one class or his class and have six kids that are special needs and it's almost like they could flip a coin to see if they get a teacher assistant that looks after the kids with special needs gotcha so it's like it's tough for them because like everyone's trying to learn at the suggested pace and you have kids who have different you know disabilities a sense that are trying to catch up and if they get frustrated they don't they'll like act out and it's tough like i hope that eventually our system improves that so they can have more help 
And I yep. train a couple teachers myself, and that's one of the complaints that they get is like they'll have the one uh, a woman I trained. She said she at one year she had nine kids with learning disabilities, and she said it was the hardest year that she ever had to work with because she didn't have any extra help. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's it's a tough scenario. The other thing I noticed when I was training um, my Paralympic swimmer was uh, his diet was one big issue, and. Okay. Because he was, I think, in a week, he probably had close to, like, 25 hours of physical activity, like, swim practices, the gym, and dry land training, and all that other stuff, and, you know, wow. that's it's a lot on the body, but he wasn't eating enough, and it probably took a year and a half to kind of convince him that he needs to eat more in order to fuel his body, because the other thing was that he was comparing himself to another swimmer that we trained and this guy's like a genetic god like he can look at a dumbbell and just get bigger biceps right he's like one of those guys an asshole in other words (laughs) yeah yeah he was always looking at him he's like oh i should be that ripped like i want a six pack so i'm gonna eat less and it's like no like come on man (laughs) and it's a it's a tough thing but i think there's different ways around it if you just you just have to put an extra step or two and they'll be successful regardless. Yeah. Um, the last question I kind of wanted to ask you was, um, in the past couple of years, have you changed your mind about anything in the fitness and nutrition realm? Uh, yeah, a few things. Um, nothing as far as like completely hard line stances on things, but I don't, I don't tend to have very extreme, opinions on things, but I can tell you a few of them. I remember a point um, when I, this was just before I started coaching, when I thought that everyone should always track everything that they eat. I recall a point when I thought that nutrient timing did not matter at all. And I think that that's incredibly incorrect. I think nutrient timing does matter. It's just a matter of uh, why does it matter and how much. Um, but But I think it's incorrect to say that it doesn't matter. Um, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that there probably is, it's probably a very good idea to space out protein feedings. Um, I think that probably matters more than I originally gave it credit for. Um, so those are a few things that I'd say I definitely changed my opinion on. And I also think in general, uh, well, my voice just cracked there. Hello. Pu- <laughs> uh, 39 and going through puberty apparently. Nice. I also think that I've actually taken a softer stance on a lot more things lately. Kind of, kind of one of those uh, things where in the beginning you think you know everything, and then as you start to know more, you think you don't know shit. And I'm kind of, I'm, I've kind of been in the, you know, I, I kind of question everything now, and um, just, just kind of take a softer stance on things if that makes sense i don't know if i'm explaining that well no i I totally get it because it's like the more you read and educate yourself you're like man maybe nothing works (laughs) right Right. or or alternatively maybe uh you know maybe it's that we've got a variety of things that matter to varying degrees but there's just a whole lot of room for customization with with a ton of those things so the other thing i was going to ask i almost forgot was do you think we're failing as an industry to help the general public with weight loss and health in general? Yes, um, but but I think that 
I, I don't know what the solution is, but I think that like when you look at what the popular diet books are out there and the popular, you know, the things people know about, like I'll, I'll throw it works out there again. Like the idea that people think they can just wrap saran wrap around themselves to lose weight. It, it to me says that the good information is not getting to the masses or or it says that uh, they aren't they aren't eating it up. So, OK, one of those two things. But like, I'll just say this, like you, you look at some of the brilliant minds that we have in our in our little fitness network, like on social media and, the you know, the people that are just incredibly knowledgeable. And you wonder, like, why aren't these the people that are on television shows leading the charge. Um, and so that doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. And I don't want to try to paint that picture. It's just something is wrong when that's the case. I think um, if we had to do it, it would be if we could do a better job marketing it to the general population. And I think I might have said this yeah. on this show. There, Do you know what the Kino body is? Uh, vaguely. The name, the name rings. Yeah. Up. So this trainer, I think he's probably like mid-20s. He obviously had a huge budget to do this like Facebook campaign and video and it was like he rented out a giant mansion. He rented out a Lamborghini and had all these beautiful models and it was like a one minute video of him saying like would Bruce Wayne take all these supplements and eat out of Tupperware containers? No, because he's blah 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 and it was just like the camera following him around and he's like shirtless and ripped and like all that stuff sells because people are like, oh, I want to like pay attention to it. And yeah. like I looked him up and it's not like groundbreaking or anything like that. It's like a basic um, bodybuilding program and the diet was like intermittent fasting. Right. And I was like, it's not the best information, but he got a lot of attention from the general population. Because with a video like that, people are like, yeah, I told like yeah. I want to buy whatever he's selling. Right. Yep. And if someone in our industry that had a huge budget like this guy did and did the same thing and gave really good information, like that would be one way of doing it, I think. Yeah, I, I would hope so, but I don't know. I, I wonder if it's that the information itself is just not sexy. Like it, it, it doesn't seem um, – there's not a lot of, of a hook to uh, track your calories and exercise four days a week. Like, you know yeah. – it seems it seems like it's a lot sexier to tell someone that carbohydrates are spiking their insulin, and if they could only keep their hormone levels under control, that fat would melt off of them. Like that just seems like a story that people are more likely to buy into. Yeah. So, that's my opinion. Yeah, like eventually we'll break through. Like the one thing I saw, I think this past week, Ben Bruno went on uh, like Morning America yes. or something, and I was like, "Yes, we're breaking through." Yes. <laughs> he's, he's obviously doing very, very well. Yeah. So that's that's just awesome. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of the one of the good guys, uh, you know, making making waves. Yeah, especially like uh, Kate Upton's been posting a lot about her training and diet, and it's like all good information and. Anytime she's on like a front cover, like Ben Bruno's mentioned, and I'm like, yes, like we're breaking That's through. This is great. <laughs> yep. uh, so uh, last question, because we're already at an hour. This stuff always goes so fast. Like I can't phantom of this, but um, where can people find you online? If you have any projects coming up, speaking things or seminars or any kind of thing like that, just plug away. <laughs> I don't really do any uh, speaking other than uh, I'm, I'm the co-host on Shredded by Science Radio, and most of the segments that we do where I'm co-hosting 
are directly for uh, my Eat Train Progress group on Facebook. That is Eat, comma, Train, comma, Progress. And um, there are there's actually a page and a group. And I'm no longer actively posting on the page because I created the group a few months back to try to generate more interaction. The group is now at it's somewhere around like 2,600 people, and it's growing very, very rapidly. And it's a place where you can find me, and I encourage you to post questions and to contribute on threads. And you can also post memes, and you can also just post sarcastic, funny stuff if you want. As long as there aren't any personal attacks and as long as people don't discuss politics or religion and they don't promote or sell products, it's kind of an open forum and it's become a very, very fun place. So that is where I would mainly direct people to find me right there on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 38 with Patrick. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that one. And again, share this podcast, tell all your friends about it, help me spread the message, and I'll be forever grateful. Until next week, you guys.